Welcome back to the Oil Ground Up Podcast with me, Tony Greer. In today's episode, we will welcome Robert Mullen of Marathon Resource Advisors. Marathon is a San Francisco-based investment manager focused on creating long-term value for investors through the natural resources sector. Marathon believes natural resources represent one of the few niches of true value in an increasingly expensive world of financial alternatives. As a general partner and portfolio manager of Marathon, Robert has a lot of great insight into the oil and gas market. Also, as a reminder, this episode of Oil Ground Up podcast is produced in a partnership with Clear Commodity Network. You can find this episode and the rest of our network content at clearcommodity.net. Please be sure to like, subscribe, and share around. Now, let's get into my conversation with Robert Mullen. Good day, everyone. I'm here with Robert Mullen, founder and chief investment officer of Marathon Resources, which is a firm focusing on natural resources investments globally. Robert, thank you for taking the time to have a conversation with me about the oil markets today. Absolutely. Great to be here, Tony. Yeah. Um, first thing we've got to start in with is obviously your reaction to um, you know what your thoughts on the oil market are, given the Hamas attack on Israel and ensuing geopolitical sort of um, quagmire we're stepping into. Uh, oil took a real steep move, um, you know, from eighty-two at the lows right up to I would say I guess call it eighty-five, eighty-six um, last sale. And looks like it's probably going to hang in there for a bit. Tell me what you think about what's going on there. Yeah, look, well, there, there's always a part of you that hates to uh, sort of dehumanize what's happening in uh, sort of these some of these political events, uh, and then immediately extrapolate them to markets. But you know that's 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 part of our job, and we you know we need to be paying attention to what's going on around the world. Um, you know the history of sort of the impact of Middle Eastern tensions on oil prices for the better part of the last 15 or 20 years has been pretty transitory. Um, you know, you get these uh, breakouts of hostilities, um, concerns about wider engagements and potentially larger disruptions typically don't end up coming to pass. Uh, and so usually you just get kind of a brief pop. Uh, it sort of disseminates out of the market over the next, uh, you know, two, three, four, five weeks, uh, and away we go. I'm not sure we know enough right now to say whether this time will be any different. Um, look, if we start talking about the real, look, either you know, you're talking about uh, Israel uh, and Lebanon and minimal in terms of production of uh, oil or key commodities, the real risk comes if we start to pull in uh, infrastructure from Iran and, uh, you know, where you start to see those things start to be targeted uh, by any military excursions. And that's, that, that's really what we're waiting for. If that happens, then I think you can have a lasting impact. Um, but until we see that, I think you got to work under the assumption that the same thing that's been happening for the last 20 years happens, which is, you know, big pop up front, gradually the market decides to concentrate on other things and it's sort of, uh, you know, feathers out of the market. Interesting. So you don't think, think there's a lasting effect of this bounce in oil, you know, and uh, or future um, for the situation to heat up much further? 
You know, I, that's the thing is I, from a political analysis standpoint, if you do actually see um, whether it's increased sanctions against Iran or targeting their refining infrastructure um, or any of their key export ports, those would be the sort of things that would have a lasting impact on the oil markets. And we just we just don't know. Uh, we just don't know that yet. And so uh, I think from a trading standpoint, we're kind of in an interesting spot with with crude and it speaks to uh, sort of the more fundamental uh, positions uh, going on right now, where you know you've got very you know relatively tight markets that have been manifesting themselves over the last three or four months that have pulled crude from a six handle to you know a nine handle as of a week ago. Um, but you're starting to see you know a little bit of cracks in the edifice of demand uh, through crack spreads, and it looks like product prices have been pretty weak. So it's kind of it's it's a it's it's a tale of two spreads right now. Um, that if you take the politics and move it out. Um, it's given kind of a mixed picture at this point. Yeah. What do you make of this recent collapse in uh, the gas crack? I mean, it has literally evaporated and it almost looks unnatural given, you know, sort of the rest of what you see going on in the world. It kind of got spurred by a big inventory build in gasoline. And next thing you know, the whole complex tumbled over. What are your thoughts on that, Robert? Yeah, it's, you know, so the things that have been bullish about crude oil over the last couple of months, um, you know, had very steep uh, backwardation in the time spreads. So that was sending a very bullish signal, effectively the market saying, we want barrels and we want them now. Um, and so there was that scramble for prompt supply um, had been pulling the market up. You also had, you know, a big flip in CTA positioning over the last, you know, what call it three months, where oil had been kind of everybody's favorite uh, short economy hedge. Um, and it went from that to building some momentum. All of a sudden, the trend followers started to pile on and your, your net positioning went from pretty defensive to pretty offensive. So that set us up, you know, a little over a week ago for any sort of vulnerability. And and so that's where the funny story of the crack spreads come in, you know, for those who aren't trading this stuff uh, every day, you know, that's the difference between what you sell your slate of products from the, uh, you know, from your, from your barrel of crude oil versus the barrel of crude oil itself. So it's effectively a proxy for refiner uh, um, profitability. And so that slate of products, it had gone from being a, you know, effectively making 40 or 45 bucks a barrel on the products that you sell, gasoline, naphtha, uh, diesel, uh, uh, distillates, et cetera. Um, that had gone from over 40 bucks to now we're sub 20. And in some of the crack spreads, because there are dozens of different ones, you know, you're talking sub 10 bucks. And so yeah. that, you know, that's a beast of a move and you know but the nature of refining is it it makes natural gas look calm by comparison in terms of how fast these crack spreads swing but it is potentially a sign that demand is starting to slow that all of a sudden you've got these refiners go you know working full out to get products into the marketplace and demand is just kind of on the margin softening and so that's that's really the conundrum that uh, sort of was the one two punch that gave us a you know the quick seven or eight down bucks you know before we got four bucks back yesterday. Yeah, yeah, it was really interesting. Exactly, the volatility is like at a breakneck pace. Tell me, where do you think, Robert, are the good investments across the energy space? Um, and you don't exactly have to you know put your money down with a hard view, or you can mm-hmm. just say like you know what kind of spaces or opportunities you guys are looking into across like E and P or refiners or oil services or something like that. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. So uh, I'll take a step back for just a second, just kind of sure. the way we're structurally viewing the uh, the energy markets and oil in particular, because that's going to be the biggest driver. You know, so I think this significant recovery in crude oil that we've seen over the last, uh, you know, kind of couple of years since the COVID lows, um, you had a couple of major drivers of that. Uh, you had sort of the, you know, and, and the willingness of E&P companies to spend and put money into the ground was driven by a few different factors. You know, one was the big recovery in oil prices peaking kind of back around the Ukraine invasion last year at kind of a 120 bucks a barrel. Um, you still had companies with relatively low interest rate debt or bank lines, and so they were pretty free to spend. And so that production came into the market. You had what they call ducks, which is drilled uncompleted wells, which there was a big buildup of these wells that you had basically done everything except turn on the taps. Uh, and so that number ran from like, you know, 4,000 to 7,000 or something like that. So you had this huge inventory of wells that, you know, had been drilled, had been cased, uh, had infrastructure built to them, but the companies just really hadn't done the final steps to kind of turn them on. And so that was a big part of the recovery in production. So this is all things that drove, you know, U.S. crude oil production, you know, up a couple million barrels over the last couple of years. You had a few, couple of other things that were important too, which was you had a huge number of private equity backed companies um, that were drilling really aggressively because the point of a private equity backed company, uh, you know, is to drill the piss out of the inventory that you've got to show how good it is. And then you get bought out. So the private equity company gets a liquidation. Uh, And so the private companies had been drilling like crazy, much faster than the public companies. And so you had all these things sort of come into the market where, you know, yes, that's how we, you know, got back the 2 million barrels a day of production that we lost over COVID, um, you know, and got back to kind of pretty close to all time highs. But the question is, where are all of those things now? You know, right now, I, I can think you can make a pretty good argument that we're moving from kind of the tier one most productive acreage uh, in places like the Permian, which has effectively accounted for 90% of the production growth globally over the last decade. You know, we're moving from tier one to tier two. So the productivity of that is starting to fall. You know, if you look at amount of production per foot of lateral extent, which is really the way you equal equilibrate, you know, these long um, horizontal wells that you drill. And that's been that's been falling for about a year or a year and a half. So so we're getting less out of the ground per every foot that we're drilling these long laterals. That's telling you that the quality of the acreage is starting to decline a little bit. Without question, like everybody else in the market, you got a much higher cost of debt. Um, the M and A that started some of these private companies have gotten taken out, and so they're not drilling as fast anymore because they're now part of larger companies. Um, interesting uh, corollary on this: if you look at like Exxon and Pioneer, so there's a lot of speculation about them growing. They have roughly the same size of production bases in the Permian. Exxon runs about 18 rigs. Pioneer runs about 27. So the independents are always companies that are drilling a lot faster. As this acreage gets consolidated for the bigger guys, the bigger guys are more like, I don't care what people think about my production for the next six or 12 months. I'm trying to maximize it for the next five years. And so you're naturally going to see the rig count come down. And that's that's really what we're seeing. So you've got no more ducks. Anything's left on the drilled uncompleted wells is effectively stuff that they call dead ducks, wells that will never be completed because they're in bad parts of the, you know, p- bad parts of the basin, um, you know, not close enough to infrastructure to justify. Um, and then, you know, you've got uh, you know, all of a sudden you now have to build new infrastructure to where you're going. So I guess what I'm coming around to is 
over the last two and a half years, you've had the highest productivity dollars and most aggressive dollars that you're going to see go into the ground because you had easy wells to complete, close to infrastructure, and private companies drilling their brains out and cheap debt to fund it. Now we've got none of that. Right. Um, and so now it's expensive to uh, expensive to pull on any credit lines. The ducks are gone. The private companies are getting consolidated. Even some of the publics are getting scooped up. So that's that's really what had started to drive this tightness that ended up getting, you know, driving us, as I said, from a six handle to a nine handle. Uh, and then you layer the, the positioning of the CTAs on top of it. And that gave us the swing that we've got. You know, now it's a question of can demand hold up? Uh, and so that's the real question that we're going to. So where that leaves me in terms of wanting to invest is, you know, I like upstream. I like, but I prefer not to go into the Permian area. Um, I'm more of a uh, sort of quasi-conventional uh, other basins, global basins. Uh, you know, I love the Latin American majors. Um, you know, the, some of the best growth in the world is going to come out of Brazil. Um, and that's an incredibly productive basin where um, you you know your, your first year, first year wells out of the Permian right now are declining seventy five percent in their first year. It's unbelievable some of the stuff coming out of uh, uh, you know uh, uh, sort of the the prime kind of nine counties that make up the Permian. So the decline rates are really accelerating. I can go to Brazil and I can drill stuff that declines at, you know, 10 or 12% a year. So that makes the treadmill much lower. So that to me is an attractive place. Um, I've also gotten pretty keen on um, uh, natural gas, particularly in uh, the North Sea. So the European natural gas market, which was uh, a darling last year, last year because of the invasion of Ukraine and sort of the scramble for supplies. Europe spent effectively $300 billion buying up every cargo of LNG that they could find all around the world to make sure that they didn't get caught short last winter. That combined with a two standard deviation warmer than normal winter. So prices came crashing right back down. So European natural gas prices look like Mount Fuji, right? You know, huge <laughs> run up last year, huge yeah. run down this year, you know. Now those companies are super cheap. Complacency is really high. They're much closer to their 52-week lows than their 52-week highs. Some of them are actually on 52-week lows. Um, so that, to me, is a market where people are not particularly optimistic about it. So I like that. Um, yeah. What do you do? Um, do you think that this like sort of little mini rally that we've just seen has got some legs? I mean, you perfectly described the Mount Fuji shape of the natural gas chart, but we are, you know, at the bottom of the right leg of Mount Fuji, we are now kind of starting to ascend through the moving averages. You know, U.S. natural gas yeah. just traded, you know, from about, what, 275 to 340 or so, give or take. Mm -hmm. um, do you think the rally has legs here or do you think this is a flash in the pan? So I'm more constructive on European natural gas prices than I am on the U.S. We're okay. still to some degree export constrained. doesn't mean that we can't have a rip in gas price rally if the weather cooperates. Um, mm -hmm. Because, you know, despite the fact that we're drilling a lot more for natural gas, um, or at least rig count has come up a fair amount, production is kind of flattish with where it was last year. And so um, structurally, it's good. It doesn't get great until you can tie in that extra five, six BCF a day of export capacity via LNG that's coming on in the next 18 months. Um, so that's, that, that is a definite catalyst. I just think the catalyst for European natural gas prices are, are a lot closer uh, in terms of, you know, that, that could be a big issue this winter um, and definitely next summer.
Um, so that's that's where I'm concentrating my uh, my attention right now. Yeah, what what should we look for, Robert, in terms of signals that this is going to bubble up again like it did last winter? You know, and last winter yeah. the ECB got a lot of help, you know, with a lot of monetary stimulus to help out and a lot of help from the weather, quite frankly, to bail them out of that natural gas situation. What kind of yeah. sing- signals should we look for this time into that trade? Yeah, ultimately, you watch the TTF, Dutch natural gas price, and that's going to be the thing that sort of tips the hat as to how things are tightening up. This is part of what's being impacted by um, you know some of the things going on in the Middle East now, though, because uh, tomorrow, which is one of the major natural gas fields in Israel, has been shut down. Um, and so that's decreasing things. You're actually seeing um, some of the Scandinavian. There's an article out this morning about, uh, I think it's Denmark's uh, pipeline to Estonia um, is you know, uh, sort of giving the same signs that happened when Nord Stream uh, got sabotaged. Um, we don't know 100% what it is yet. It's too early to tell. But if you start seeing kind of attacks on infrastructure, um, you know, that's where things really start to tighten up. You had the other thing that, that was a sort of inclination that this is going to happen was when the uh, you know the Russians basically started to talk about decreasing diesel exports so diesel yeah. is a is a is a substitute product for natural gas for power generation in Europe and so that was something that you know was potentially them positioning for trying to tighten up markets in such a way that it gives them once again leverage uh, over you know over the European continent uh, and so the more you see little, it's it's not just one thing, but watch the mosaic of sort of natural gas supplies uh, and alternative product supplies to Europe. And that tells you, you know, how heavy a hand Putin's trying to get before this winter comes, you know, and again, ultimately, you just got to, it's going to be a weather call, but, you know, the likelihood of two you know, multiple standard deviation warmer than normal winters back to back, you know, is not is not a high probability bet. And so that's 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 going to be tricky. Um, and so that's that those are the things that I'm looking at. It's just a it's sort of a mosaic of things. Yeah, absolutely fair. Robert, give me I would I'd love to hear your view on the US refiners from here, given the fact that yeah. um, you know, we they've been they've been, the stocks have been flying, names like Marathon Petroleum and Valero, they've been soaring, you know, right towards fifty-two week highs, you know, on a regular basis. We've just had this hiccup where the gas um cracks spilled over, the whole entire diesel spreads collapsed a little bit. And I'm wondering if there's still, you know, opportunity in the refineries. The stocks haven't backed off much. And so I'm wondering if you have a view there at all. Yeah, so interesting. So I I, I pay, play refiners very you know periodically. You know when you sort of get all signals across it. Last year there was a great bull signal when diesel prices really started to rip, um, and you saw refinery profitability just go bananas. Uh, and so that was a, a great time to be long refiners. I actually I was at a macro conference uh, up in Vail. Um, week before last. Um, and my one energy short call was the refiners. Um, it was really the day they were hitting 52 week highs, like a week ago, Thursday. Um, and to me, to have them hitting 52 week highs with the 
incredible deterioration of the crack spreads from 40 something to, you know, 20, now 19, 18, 17, you know, to me, that looks like a reasonable place to be able to lay off some risk. If you've got a long term, long energy equity book um, and you want to hedge out some of this near term uh, sort of volatility in potential demand and economic concerns and those sorts of things, to me, the refiners look pretty expensive. Um, you know, the, the, the Q3 earnings will still be relatively good, but to, they'll give guidance on Q4. And it looks, you know, like a, at this point, it looks like a little bit of a train wreck uh, in terms of the, the margin compression. So that's an area where I think it's a little, to me, it's a little easier to be short than be long. And that, that would be the way I'd protect other energy equity positions. Yeah, I tend to agree. If you if you trade them as aggressively sort of off of your view and the charts of the crack spreads, they are like teed up like a beach ball right now, right? It's like an outlier yeah. expensive sector of the market. So that's really interesting. Thank you for yeah. that. Um, yep. Do you see, um, do any other opportunities jump out at you like kind of outside the world of energy that are outside your expertise? I always kind of like to say, you know, kind of have somebody look out at the world from the energy world and say, well, this looks kind of interesting to me too. Is there anything in the world that's catching your eye like that in terms of a trade or investment opportunity? Yeah. So, so look, we invest across the entire natural resource spectrum. So yeah. energy, mining, chemicals, paper, yeah. steel, transports, infrastructure, agriculture. Um, and you're absolutely right is that energy is kind of the mother, you know, the mother product that drives the investment cases for a lot of other sectors. Yeah. Uh, and so areas where, you know, we've been allocating capital, you know, I, I think the agriculture space is really interesting. The link to energy there is when you get expensive, you know, oil or more importantly, regional natural gas prices, that affects fertilizer production because that's the major feedstock into your nitrogen fertilizer complex. Uh, and so that was a big factor when Russia invaded Ukraine, because you've had, you know, a huge amount of uh, not only grain production, um, but also fertilizer production out of Belarus and and Ukraine and sort of those areas. And so I do think that there's a, the potential for a little bit of a replay of that where high natural gas prices in Europe, if they come to pass, uh, end up driving uh, a lot of the European fertilizers just shut down because they just can't compete. You know, if your if your natural gas price is the equivalent of twenty five bucks an M in Europe versus three bucks an M in the U S, the U S is going to be the one who who gener- who 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 makes the fertilizer, um, and the Euro- and the Europeans are just going to go, I'm out because I can't make any money. Yeah. Uh, and so I think we have the potential for that set up again. So the the U S based nitrogen fertilizer companies um, look pretty interesting to me. I also think there's a derivative here in the coal markets um, where that that's also kind of a substitute fuel that was a big driver for the coal stocks last year. And, uh, you know, now you've got this incredible bifurcation. The U.S. coal stocks are trading pretty close to 52-week highs. You've got a lot of the, you know, European, South African, Australian coal stocks trading a lot closer to 52-week lows. To me, you know, I'll take the latter, you know, cheap ones with 20-plus percent dividend yields and trading at two or three times earnings. That, to me, looks like a pretty good place to, to hang out. Yeah, I, I, I love that, you know, I, I love that it really sets up for sort of some of the repeat trades that we saw last year. I mean, there could be two Mount Fuji's on the chart before this whole thing is over, you know, which is really, really fascinating yeah. to me. Um, yep. Tell yep. me about- echo, echo booms. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Of different magnitudes, et cetera. That'd be really interesting to, to trade and ride through. Um, you know, given a lot of this is really um, 
being forced by the net zero movement and, and climate change um, fears and, and ways the governments are addressing that. Tell me your thoughts on that whole rigmarole of, you know, from climate change to government response to even, you know, if you care to the World Economic Foundation's posture towards it, which is extremely aggressive with net zero 2030, yeah. et cetera, et cetera. What do you think of that yeah. stuff, Rob? So look, there there are good reasons to try and be more environmentally friendly in everything that we do, and um, I think the natural the, the companies uh, the, in the resource complex have naturally been doing that for a number of years. And quite frankly, the U.S. has been doing a really good job of that. U.S. per capita emissions are down by twenty percent over the last ten years, and the big reason we did that is not because we got more windmills and solar panels. Reason is we phased out a bunch of coal and we ended up uh, having natural gas. So that's really been the biggest mover for U.S. emissions. That's lost in the entire political discussion. What most people are looking at is, you know, look, politician cocktail napkin math that says we must drive down the use of fossil fuels as quickly as possible. And, you know, the math on it just doesn't work for anyone who has an understanding. We've got too many philosophers and not enough engineers out there who actually know how this stuff works. I can build a case where you could actually eliminate 100% of the uh, cars, uh, the internal combustion engine cars globally. And you wouldn't decrease oil production or oil oil consumption at all. <laughs> um, and and so so what are we spinning our wheels on? What are we spending our tax dollars on? Um, it's 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 it's. I think it will go down at some point. As look, it's it is driven by a good impulse. Um, and but the fact of the matter is, we're wasting uh, just a metric shit ton of capital um, on these things that are not giving any sort of economic return and at the end of the day aren't actually helping us reduce carbon emissions. And yeah. so it's just it's 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 hard to watch as someone who for the last 30 years has paid attention to the economics of the energy complex and just sees trillions and trillions of dollars effectively being shoveled into the furnace um, when they could be going to much better things. And so uh, that's that's the frustrating part. Yeah, it sure is. And I find myself saying, you know, at least we have the markets that we can express that view in, right? We can, you know, we can buy the uh, fossil fuel companies. We can short the solar stocks that look like they're going to round trip to zero because eventually the world, you know, the gig is going to be up on all that. Uh, Robert, I'd love to reach through the camera and give you a big hug for your view on that. I love your comment that there are too many philosophers and not enough engineers. Um, you know, we have a, uh, we have another saying between my friend Doomberg and I that, uh, which he came up with actually is, um, you know, this, this climate movement is where physics meets platitudes, right. And physics winds up winning every single time. So it's going to be, yeah. you know, with, with bright minds like you and him agreeing in the same way, coming from a different angle, I find it really comforting on sort of, you know, just, just over time, making more and more bets toward that end where we're going yep. to see a, some, at some point, a resurgence of fossil fuel need use demand, et cetera, and probably a tapering off of this, you know, insane agenda towards net zero, because I don't think anybody would argue that we would all love to be more kind to the planet Earth, but we can't do it in such a way that we're going to freeze or starve to death. So um, yeah. eventually we'll figure out hopefully a, a calm pattern through this whole thing. Rob, to wrap it up, um, I, you know, just as a sort of recap, you saw some opportunity in natural gas plays in Europe, in non-Permian upstream 
Um, obviously, all over the energy space, there's opportunity. You think refiners are a bit overvalued at the moment. You see other opportunities just outside the energy area in the ag space, um, maybe even fertilizer and coal. Um, is there anything that I've left out about any of your strong views that um, I haven't asked about or that you'd like to portray um, before rolling this up? I thought everything that we covered was super relevant and really, really pointed information that I really value. So thank you very much for all of it. Yeah, the only other thing that I'd add in is I think gold is kind of an interesting allocation here. Um, I'm not I, I'm not a big worrier about you know real rates or inflation or in deflation. I just think gold is a portfolio allocation in a world where bonds are not doing their job of reducing the volatility of a bond stock portfolio. People are going to look for something else, uh, and you know a non-counterparty uh, asset that has historically played a pretty good role in reducing overall portfolio volatility. That is near uh, sort of generational lows in terms of the percent that's being allocated to it, and uh, you know the dynamics are central banks are buying it hand over fist. Meanwhile, they're like the guy in Animal House saying, "All is well," you know, remain yeah. calm. You know, we're all good, Kevin Bacon. You know, right? So, but they're telling us all is good, but they're buying gold hand over fist, and we, you know the retail set have been selling it to them and making it easy for them. I think at some point retail is going to figure out that that shouldn't be the case, and when retail and the central banks are scrambling to buy gold at the same time, really interesting things can happen. So that'd be the only other thing that I'd add in. Oh man, I love that view because that's very out of consensus, right? Everybody is so fixated on gold versus real yields and gold is still overpriced. And, you know, you look at it and you say, man, there's got to be other good reasons for that. And you, you know, you beautifully point out that it could be because the bond market's not doing its job here in the worst bear bond market in history, quite actually, that we've ever seen. So there are yeah. opportunities all over the natural resources space. And I would imagine that uh, you guys are going to be busy for many years to come. So I wish you all the luck in the world, Rob. Really appreciate it, Tony. Always great. Uh, you know, enjoyed really enjoyed chatting with you. Hope we get a chance to do it again soon. Yo, yeah, we're gonna we're gonna come back to you on this and go over all the things that we discussed today. I think you offered some really really brilliant insight into the energy markets and then sort of outside the energy markets as well. This is a really valuable conversation, so I'm really grateful. Thank you very much. Great, thank you, sir. Thanks for coming on, Rob. This episode of The Oil Ground Up with Tony Greer should not be perceived as investment advice. Tony, his guests here on The Oil Ground Up, and the host company Clear Commodity Network are not responsible for any losses arising from any investment decisions based on the information presented. Please do your own research and speak with a licensed financial representative before making any investment decisions.